Um, let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the blessing of the Holy Eucharist, the blessing of the source and summit of our religious lives as Catholics, the blessing of your Son's very body and blood given over for us in the cross, the blessing that can break the grip of evil, can heal the effects of sin, can absolve venial sin, can transform our lives, and indeed can bring us into eternal life as your Son has promised. Help to deepen us this day with these insights that have been given to us by history and science so that we might have a firm conviction to bring to the world that your Son is really present as he promised through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And Mary Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, I might start off with a rhetorical question. Is Jesus Christ really present in the Eucharist? And the obvious answer is, of course he is. And um, what is the evidence for it? Well, aside from the fact of uh, 2,000 unbroken years of church tradition, starting with the very scriptures themselves and going through the unanimous view of all of the church fathers until the Protestant Reformation, I'd say that's pretty good. But then there's also the literal interpretation of the scriptural text if you don't fiddle around with it and try and find an opposite view from the one intended by the scriptural author. I mean, how do you read this passage from John 6, right? Uh, um, I am the living bread come down from heaven. He who eats this bread will have eternal life, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. How do you interpret that any other way than, yeah, this is the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Uh, this is my body being given for you. This is my blood being poured out for you. Enough said, the literal interpretation of the scripture text, the unbroken line of tradition, certainly speaks eloquently to the fact, and of course the common belief in, in the church throughout speaks eloquently to the fact that Jesus surely intended to give us his real body and blood in the Holy Eucharist. But is there something more? Is there some kind of evidence that we can have in the 21st century that really uh, you know, opens up this reality of Jesus and the Holy Eucharist, opens up the reality from science even in a skeptical generation that views such tremendous miracles as our Lord's real presence among us in the Holy Eucharist, and views it with a, a jaundiced eye, a skeptical eye? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is. And I want to take a look at two aspects of that evidence today. There is more. But first area that I want to look at is the historical area. What did Jesus intend about the real presence at the Last Supper? And the second thing is I want to look at three contemporary Eucharistic miracles that truly will blow your mind, not just because of the great scientific pedigree of the experimental evidence that's been used to validate them, but also because they contain almost indubitable uh, uh, evidence that it really is Jesus' living uh, flesh, living heart tissue that is growing out of these hosts. Well, let's get on with the, the first set of evidence, and that is uh, the texts themselves. And what did Jesus intend? If we're going to get used to Jesus' Eucharistic words and his intention at the Last Supper, the first thing we have to do 
is get rid of our notion of time, and we need to get a first century Semitic view of time in its place. Because Jesus lived in the first century. He was a Jewish, um, uh, uh, obviously not just prophetic figure, but messianic figure who called himself the Son of God. So he's got this Jewish viewpoint. And by the way, the Jewish viewpoint is perfectly acceptable, as we shall see, because all time has to be in the mind of God. And this is what the Jewish people thought. They thought that a prophet could utter uh, you know, the, uh, a word, a prophetic word about the future, and that the prophet's word would take on an independent life of its own and go into the future and bring the future event into the present. They thought that that was the case. And why not? I wrote an entire doctoral dissertation that showed that you cannot have a non-contemporaneous earlier or later continuum unless it is held together by a non-temporal agency like God with a non-temporal mind like God that can hold together uh, the non-contemporaneity of earlier and later. That's absolutely true. Time is in the mind of God and nowhere else. If God wants to collapse time, if God wants to allow the prophet's word to go into the future, and he's got the future already in his mind, and bring the future event into the present, he can do it. There's no problem, because time exists in the mind of God and can only exist in the mind of God. And furthermore, this word anamnesis, do this in remembrance of me, is not simply a calling to mind in first century Judaism for the prophet, right? The prophets actually, when they meant that, they meant uh, relive this. So in other words, God's asking them to relive the sacred event. And when they relive the sacred event, then they actually collapse time and they go back from the present into the past event and they actually share the efficacy of the grace in the past event. Now, I know that you're thinking to yourself, this is like a lot of gobbledygook to me. Think of it this way. God can actually collapse the time between the future and the present, and that's what Jesus was doing at the Last Supper. And secondly, God can collapse the time from the present moment back to the past event which is what a priest does every single time he elevates that host and says, this is my body, this is my blood. The time collapses and goes right back to the Last Supper. So let's see what was happening uh, with Jesus. What did he intend when he was he's speaking in a prophetic way as the Messiah, as the Son of God at the Last Supper? Notice what he says. He says, this is my body, and the word here is a present passive participle, and it's, it's called didominon, and it means being given for you. Do you get it? Like being given for you now. So the future event is literally being collapsed into Jesus' present handing of the bread to his disciples. Literally, as he's handing the bread to his disciples and saying, this is my body being given for you now, that means that the future event is in the species of that bread right now. He's not just handing them bread. He's handing them bread that's transformed into his body that's on the cross at Calvary. 
This is how he intended it. You can't make Jesus into a Greek. You can't make Jesus into a German. He wasn't a Greek, and he wasn't a German. He was Jewish, and he thought exactly this, that God controlled time, and God could make the future event come into the present. Thus, when he spoke prophetically and his word took on a life of its own and went into the future, brought back his body hanging from the cross at Calvary, he literally immerses it into the bread, transforms the bread into that dying body on the cross. And similarly with the blood, the, the, the term used there is this is uh, the, the uh, blood of the new covenant, which is being poured out for you, like now. There's that present passive participle again, that the future event is in the now, being poured out for you now on the cross, so that the blood that is dripping from his body in the future event at Calvary on Friday is literally coming into the wine, the cup of wine that he's handing to his disciples on Thursday. Too impossible to believe? Well, the majority of scholars believe that because they know what the Jewish view of time was, and it is not our physicalist scientific view of time. We just, when we we're looking at this, we just have to remember they see all time in the mind of God, and God is capable of collapsing the time from, future, from the present to the future and, the, and from the present back to the past. So, let us then go to what happens when a priest, when Jesus is saying to his disciples, right, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus was not saying to his disciples, go ahead and um, uh, call it to mind. This is just a symbol that you should call to mind. No, no, no. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is this. Relive this sacred event. That's what anamnesis means, right? Relive the sacred event. Not just call it to your mind. That's a very, um, you know, 15th century Germanic uh, interpretation of a Greek interpretation, which had nothing to do with what Jesus was saying or thinking. For all intents and purposes, Jesus is saying, relive the sacred event. When you do, I, God, will collapse that time from your present moment into the past where I am handing my bread. So when the priest says, this is my body given for you, he's literally trans, he's, the time is collapsing, God's collapsing in time from his present moment, the host he is lifting up. And what's coming into that host? Why, it's the very bread that Jesus handed to his disciples at the Last Supper. Now, if that is the case, and um, that bread is being infused in the priest's bread that he's elevating, that's the real presence of Jesus. Because remember, the bread that Jesus is giving away at the Last Supper has been transformed. <coughs> he transformed it into his body. He transformed it into the body hanging from the cross. The future event came into the past. And we call this the double collapse of time. So literally, when the priest holds up that host, he's taking that host, and now the bread that has been transformed by Jesus into his body hanging from the cross is being infused into that bread that the priest is holding up. 
And that is what we are receiving at communion. And that is what Jesus intended. And now we are the same with the blood, right? So that when the priest holds up that chalice and says, this is the cup of my blood, right? And he's uh, saying those Eucharistic words, the, the cup that Jesus is handing to his disciples that's transformed into the blood that is dripping from his body on the cross is literally being infused into the cup being held up. The fact that the bread doesn't change in appearance, the fact that the cup does not change in appearance is, you know, for the Jewish people, is inconsequential. It is the grace of the act. It's Jesus' whole human personhood. The word used by, uh, to translate Jesus' Eucharistic words for body is sarx, I mean a soma, not the word sarx. Sarx just means flesh. What Jesus' um, uh, translators uh, translate this as a soma, which means the whole person, the entire selfhood, body, blood, soul, and divine personhood are all being infused into that um, host and infused into uh, that cup of blood. Now, got it. And, if we, and, and now if we've got that sense in our mind that Jesus really does want to make that blood and that body, his whole personhood, his body, blood, soul, and divinity hanging from the cross in, at Calvary, he wants to infuse it into the body, into the bread and the wine that the priest is holding up at Mass. Could we get any validation for that in this skeptical generation a skeptical generation that says, if, there is, if I can't detect the difference under a microscope, then I'm not going to believe. Okay, so 2,000 years later, we've got three examples of these Eucharistic hosts that have been thoroughgoingly, scientifically tested. So uh, let's start with Buenos Aires in 1996. We'll then go to uh, Tixla, Mexico in 2006 and then Sokolka, Poland in 2008. There is another one that's being now scientifically tested in Honduras uh, that uh, I'm not gonna talk about because the scientific tests are not in. But for the time being, let's take a look at these three. It establishes the case most assuredly. Let's go to Buenos Aires, 1996. In 1996, a host was left at the back of a church, um, a very large church um, in uh, Buenos Aires. The, Pastor, uh, the, the host was found, uh, abandoned there at the back, and it was given, it was consecrated host, it was uh, given to the priest. The priest in turn puts it in a glass of water, which is the normal procedure to allow the host to dissolve in the water where it can be disposed of in a sacred manner. Now, the key thing though is the host, after 30 days in the water, does not dissolve. Let me repeat that. The host, after 30 days in the water, doesn't dissolve. That's impossible. I mean, already we've got a mystery. So who was in charge, uh, who was uh, overseeing uh, this particular case in Buenos Aires? It was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires, Archbishop Bergoglio, now Pope Francis. Now, Pope Francis, or I mean, uh, Archbishop Bergoglio at the time, he goes and says, well, we better photograph this because if it didn't dissolve, and there's very little, you know, autolysis, that means, you know, dying, uh, 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 tissue degeneration uh, going on in that um, uh, tissue that's growing out of that host. I forgot to tell you that. Um, and then we got to get a picture of it. So what are they getting a picture of? 
So you can see the, in that picture, uh, uh, I know somebody told me it's kind of vague, but being a blind guy, I didn't uh, quite notice it. But the, <laughs> but the main thing, though, is, is that uh, you can uh, I, I have read the lab report, so that's how I know. So, uh, so the, uh, you can see the host, and growing out of the host there, uh, it looks like it's blood, but it really isn't blood. If you could see this in good three-dimensionality, you could see that you know, rising above the host itself is actual tissue. And the tissue is rising fairly substantially. It, of course, it's red, and it's right above the, uh, the, the tissue. And um, you know, they, uh, they said, okay, you know, they were testing this tissue, and they said, let's just leave it in uh, the tabernacle in water for another three years. I kid you not, that host you're looking at was in a tabernacle for three years in water. Now, they look at it, they do superimposition photography of the, the 30, uh, after 30 days and then after three years, and guess what? Hasn't changed much at all. So Pope, I mean, uh, Archbishop Archbishop Bergoglio goes, "Woo, we better take a look at that. And we ought to see, you know, um, uh, what's going on here. So he decides uh, to find this guy, um, Castellan Gomez, uh, who is a histopathologist, uh, a very famous one down there in Latin America. And he comes up and he says, you know, I've got to tell you, Archbishop, I'm an atheist. And so uh, um, Bergoglio goes, ah, oh, that... Uh, that's okay, you know, just do a good, honest, scientific job. That's what we want. So, of course, he says, well, the first thing we got to do is we got to take a slide, right? So you take a, a thin slice of that tissue that's growing out of the host. You put it onto a, a slide. You make sure that it is stored, you know, between two very thick pieces of glass. And you send, up, uh, send it up to, uh, in this case, uh, Columbia University, where they had an outstanding pathology center, one of the very best in the world, that was run by, it so happened, a Catholic, but that didn't make any difference. His name was Dr. Frederick Zugabi, one of the most outstanding pathologists uh, in the world. Uh, Zugabi then eventually gets to the, uh, to the tissue sample, and uh, he just thinks this is something else that's being sent up to him. And um, so he examines it, and he's really stunned because what he notices is there's white blood cells. At the time of the testing of the tissue, there were living white blood cells in the tissue. What does that mean? Since uh, white blood cells will die almost instantly, right, um, at least within three hours for sure of being disconnected from an embodied circulatory system, he said, that heart tissue was alive at the time of testing. I want to know, where did you get it from? I mean, is this like a criminal thing going on here? Did somebody open up this man and take this sample from him? And, and, and while his heart was still beating? I mean, how did you get this sample with active white blood cells in it? So, of course, they told him. They said, well... Now, this comes from a Eucharistic host, which is three and a half years old. And Zugabi, his mouth just went open, and he went. And he literally could not explain it. He basically, you know, when he hears it, he just said, this is naturalistically impossible. And that's right. It's naturalistically impossible. And he then wrote it up. 
Oh, but that's not the end of this peculiar little hose. Because those living white blood cells were embedded in the ventricle wall. Yes, what kind of tissue was this? Zugabi identified it right away as heart tissue coming from the upper left ventricle. And not only is that heart tissue, hey, by the way, heart tissue generally does not grow out of consecrated hosts. This is highly unusual. And not only is it heart tissue, it's from the upper ventricle um, of the heart tissue, and that's the ventricle, uh, the, the, um, uh, the unit that actually pumps the blood to the, rest of the, uh, uh, to the rest of the heart. Now, what's so interesting is when Zugabi actually uh, discovered this, he said, you know, this means that the, the, the man who, you know, uh, the, well, now he knows what it is, right? He knows it's a Eucharistic host. He said, this man from which the tissue came was beaten, either beaten severely around the chest or experienced something akin to a polytrauma. Okay, so um, how do you like that? Here's four little elements for you to consider in this first instance of the Eucharistic host, and then I'll talk about the, the DNA conundrum in just a moment. Number one, the tissue did not dissolve, and there was very little autolysis uh, in the tissue itself. Number two, the tissue is alive. It's not just the tissue is growing out of the host, it's live tissue growing out of the host. And if, of course, if tissue is growing out of a consecrated host, it should be alive while it's growing. That's really highly unusual. But anyway, let's keep going. Number three, the third thing that he notices is that the tissue has been wounded. So it comes uh, from the heart and it has been wounded. And then a fourth thing, just to add to the complexity, there um, is no amplifiable DNA profile. Now, uh, Zugabi did not test for DNA. What uh, Casignon Gomez did was he took it to other labs for DNA testing. And what he found was they could not amplify a profile through polymerase chain reaction, um, or something called polymerase chain reaction, couldn't uh, 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 amplify a profile. The tissue the living tissue, hey, this is living tissue at the time that the sample was taken. How, uh, how destroyed uh, could the sample be? In other words, for Zugabi, there should be an amplifiable profile. For Casignon Gomez, there should be an amplifiable profile. But there isn't one. And that we'll just call and put in our little uh, parking lot, that's going to, I'll just call it the, uh, uh, the DNA conundrum for just a second. Okay, so this is the first instance, and um, there have been other instances of Eucharistic host, but the scientific testing here is, is uh, very, very um, good, except for the DNA. They waited too long uh, to take the sample, but remember, the tissue was alive when uh, Zugabi examined it. So all of that being said and put together, we've got a very mysterious thing. Well, it was so mysterious that, remember, Ricardo Casignan Gomez was an adamant atheist, in about five minutes, he was not an adamant atheist. He suddenly really became a believer when he just kept going through the test results again and again and again. And not only that, but he has dedicated himself as a good Catholic to going around the world talking about uh, the hosts of Buenos Aires and Tixla, Mexico. So we must proceed to Tixla, Mexico, because that is an even more unusual host. Now, we're not just talking about some blood on the host here in the Tixla case. The Tixla miracle happened in 2006. 
there was a sister uh, who was basically uh, 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 getting some hosts and putting them into a ciborium in order to bring to sick people uh, around the town. As she looks into the ciborium, she notices that there is blood trickling along uh, the, the, uh, the, the surface of the host, and uh, uh, she quickly shows it to, to the priest. She starts crying, and then she shows it to the priest. The priest says, oh, put that in the tabernacle, and so they put the host in the, in the tabernacle. Right away, they knew who to call, because Castanon Gomez now was very proficient. He really wanted to get those tests done, he wanted to rush them to the labs, he wanted to make sure that the DNA testing had been done more than once by more than two labs. He gathered together 13 different experts uh, in various uh, areas, uh, literally from um, um, you know, imaging specialists and, and um, uh, microscopic specialists all the way to histopathological, uh, bacteriological, um, and uh, uh, cell uh, metabolic specialists. He put them all together in a big, huge team uh, with forensic specialists, et cetera. And of course, I'm just going to summarize the results of this remarkable host. You can see in that picture, actually, you might be able to see, I can't see. Larry tells me it's vague, but here it is anyway. There's a dimple you know, toward the side of that host. And in that little dimple in the host, there is tissue. And issuing from this tissue in the dimple is blood. Fresh blood is being manufactured by that tissue. And it is uh, coming out of the dimple and going along the surface of the host. Now, I'll tell you something right now. It is highly unusual for tissue, again, to be growing out of a host. But it's even more unusual for that tissue to be producing blood, fresh blood, even six years after the testing, uh, after the, uh, the host had been discovered. So six years after, there's still fresh blood being produced by that tissue in the dimple. Now, all I can tell you is tissue that's disconnected from an embodied circulatory system cannot produce fresh blood. That is science, uh, naturalistically impossible. But that's exactly what's happening that has been examined by nine different laboratories. It's got 13 different experts. People definitely are, are saying that the chain of custody of the host is absolutely secure. And besides, how do we know that the fresh blood is being um, uh, actually issuing uh, from the tissue? Because the pressure direction is going from the inside out up to the surface and the layers of coagulation reveal that the fresh blood has been, has been produced from the inside of that host going outward, and it cannot be injected inward without obvious indications of, of somebody like uh, forensically trying to, to, to inject this uh, uh, with blood uh, to per perpetrate a fraud. So you can see very clearly that this blood is being produced by the tissue inside the dimple uh, of the host. Furthermore, uh, we can tell by various kinds of scientific tests, you're just going to have to take my word for it, the following things. That blood not only has living macrophages, phagocytizing lipids, that is to say, uh, essentially a leukocyte, a, a white blood, a, a healing cell, 
is actually engulfing fat cells which are dangerous uh, to, the, to the tissue's life. So it's trying to heal the tissue. What does that mean? The tissue is wounded. So you can see that, that there's, a, you know, there's a, uh, obvious indications that the tissue's wounded and that the blood cells are alive still trying uh, to heal it. So the blood must itself be alive and the tissue from which the blood is issuing must be alive. And now when you look at um, that set of facts, there's still um, a more um, remarkable uh, thing. There's actually in the blood, oh by the way, all the blood typing is AB, right down the line. The same blood type as on the Shroud of Turin. So you look at this and you can see the AB blood type, but more than that, the, the, there's active red blood cells as well as active white blood cells in this blood, and therefore this is living, living whole blood issuing from this tissue. Now, Casignon Gomez learned his lesson, so he tries to zip this thing off uh, for the first genetic test. They t bring it to the first lab, first lab can't amplify through polymerase chain reaction, cannot amplify a DNA profile. Same as Buenos Aires, no DNA profile. And then, of course, six years later, by the way, six years later, when they t did another testing, as the blood is still coming out and issuing from the host, they take another sample, and you can still see no polymerase chain reaction, but the blood is alive. The tissue's still alive. How you know, de uh, decomposed, <clears throat> how degenerated can the sample be? That is the question that Casignon Gomez put to it. So we've got the DNA conundrum once again. Now, the third host. This gives us one last thing which is really important, and that is a transmission electron microscopic screening. So in Sokolka, Poland, once again, what happened was a host was dropped on the ground. And good. And when the host was dropped on the ground, um, uh, the uh, sacristan picked it up, and uh, uh, she noticed, you know, that it was uh, the priest noticed it was dirty. He said, "Okay, uh, just put it in a um, uh, glass of water in the tabernacle, and you know, check on it three, four days from now." So she, the sacristan, checks on it three, four days from now, goes in there, opens up the tabernacle, and out comes the smell of fresh bread. So she was mystified, and then she looked at it, and there she saw this crescent. But that's not just a crescent of blood you see on that host. That crescent is actually, again, it's, tish, it's tissue growing out of the host. Now that tissue that's growing out of the host, it will come as no surprise to you, um, uh, as we shall see, is living heart tissue. There was a series of different tests that were done. So they, they found the kinds of cells in the heart that make the, uh, the heart collapse. They found segmenting, uh, seg uh, segmented and fragmented uh, cells that also indicate that they're, they're very common when the heart has been uh, rapidly firing, right, as in the case of a polytrauma or some kind of excitement like a heart attack. So, or, you know, obviously being beaten around the chest or something of that nature. So these, again, we see the very same things. Uh, um, by the way, the heart uh, tissue there is in a state of dying. So it's a non-necrosed cell, uh, it, but it's a cell uh, uh, that's in a state of dying, but it is living and gradually dying. 
Now, the, the one thing, as I said, th this all resembles Buenos Aires and resembles Tixla. But what's really interesting in this sample is they went right away. This is uh, Dr. Maria Lutkowska and Dr. Uh, I mean Dr. Maria Lutkowska and Dr. Um, uh, Stanislav um, Solkowski. Uh, now they were in charge of two independent investigations. So this involves two independent transmission electron screenings. And what they found, uh, by the way, the transmission electron screening can get right to the you know, the, the, cellular, the cellular level of uh, the samples, um, the, the tissue samples that were brought there. What they found when they actually took the whole host with the tissue growing out of it, they wanted to find the exact juncture where um, the, the, um, the tissue was growing out of the host. And what they found as they looked deeper and deeper in the electron um, microscope screening, <clears throat> what they found was they saw the evidence of entanglement right, and uh, synthesis on the level of the thin filaments of the myofibrils. What we're talking about here is microns, like, like cellular units, like a cell's worth of length. They were microns um, uh, of separation, so it's, they're so closely knit together and so complexly interweaved and intertangled that um, Lepkowska just said un un indisputably, and then after Solkowski did the same thing and found the same result, they both agreed indisputably there is no technology today, absolutely no technology today that can possibly replicate that fusion of the substance of the host and the substance of the heart tissue. They are inextricably intertwined as if literally the, host, uh, the uh, tish, heart tissue is growing out of the host. Now what's so interesting about um, uh, that is that um, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the fact that nobody could have forged it. Nobody could have uh, uh, caused uh, some kind of fraudulent um, you know, production. How would you do it anyway? You stick it into the host. I mean, come on. I mean, even with the most delicate technologies, you're never going to be able to, to, uh, to, to duplicate what's going on in this host. And so they basically, they became very convinced that this was not only the real thing, but uh, was unduplicatable uh, by anyone. You know, uh, we're daring you, find a technology that will do this, and nobody has, not unsurprisingly. Okay, so now the, uh, um, uh, or uh, I should say uh, unsurprisingly, now, the, the key uh, point, um, when we sum together all the evidence, let's just take a look at uh, what, what we are left with. What we are left with are three distinct examples of heart tissue. We're not talking about blood on top of a host. We're talking about heart tissue growing out of a host. And with the transmission electron microscopic screening, you can see pretty clearly that it is really growing. So the, the consecrated host is literally giving rise to the heart tissue. And so the heart tissue is alive at the time of testing. It has the, the uh, white blood cells and in the case of Tixla, the red blood cells in the blood, um, living red blood cells and living white blood cells. And you can see from that very clearly that this is heart tissue. It comes from the upper left ventricle. And um, the, we get now to the, the two very interesting elements. The first element is 
First, it's a wounded heart. That is exactly what's growing out of there, a wounded heart, a heart that has really been beaten up. And as I always tell my students, do not think that the Catholic Church, in order to per perpetrate a fraud, would actually kill a guy, open him up, and take his beating heart, and take a chunk of flesh out of it, and try and stick it on a consecrated host, which they couldn't do anyway, as was proven by the Sokolka miracle. These are not frauds. And that's why, in the case of Tixla, the bishop right away has approved it, uh, the bishop of uh, Chilpancingo, uh, uh, Chilapa, uh, he actually, uh, uh, Bishop Castro, uh, actually came out and uh, uh, validated, approved, the, uh, approved it as a miracle. I think this is going to happen shortly in Sokolka, Poland. I mean, you just can't explain the transmission electron screening uh, evidence. But what, what am I saying is, yeah, you've got a wounded heart there, and now let's get back to the DNA conundrum for just one second. And the DNA conundrum is, is truly fascinating. How come there is no male DNA in Jesus? Why? I mean, that's my explanation for why there's no polymerase chain reaction, why there's no amplifiable profile. Remember, Jesus didn't have a human father. And you can say to, you, to me, you say, well, Spitzer, if, if he didn't have, a, uh, you know, at least the male um, uh, counterpart, um, you know, some kind of a DNA, like a Y chromosome, uh, um, you know, if, if he didn't have that, uh, forget about him, you know, exemplifying human male features. Ah, but you are forgetting one thing. It is, after all, God who created that mystical language of DNA. I call it mystical, but it's biologically intelligible, obviously. But the main thing is, is if God wants to supply a, me, a male DNA uh, 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 characteristics, indeed, a father's DNA counterpart uh, to Mary's motherly DNA, uh, to give to Jesus, he can do whatever he wants. He created DNA, he can create a separate DNA which is undetectable uh, you know, um, uh, by polymerase chain reaction. Uh, he can do that in the instance of these Eucharistic miracles. But I frankly have no other explanation. I could not tell you why there's no amplifiable profile there, but it might be an indication, it just might be an indication that Jesus really didn't have a human father, and that God was really his father and gave him the DNA counterparts required in order to have this, obviously, if you believe the evidence from the Shroud of Turin, Semitic, Jewish guy, very tall for his generation, uh, almost uh, 5'11", um, and uh, uh, you know, with the uh, very handsome face, very muscular body, clearly uh, you can see it on the Shroud. Um, it came from some uh, DNA counterparts, and I would suspect that it was provided by God. Well, seeing all of these things, what do I recommend we do in the future um, if we want to just respect the science that's here? And uh, I recommend the following, that when you are receiving uh, the Holy Eucharist, just try to contemplate for a moment what is there, the actual wounded heart of Jesus. But remember, it's not just the heart of Jesus. Remember, Soma, it's the whole self of Jesus. Body, blood, soul, and divine personhood is all embedded in that host. And so as we see that, my recommendation uh, to you is to take 
um, you know, a sacred heart. Remember those uh, sacred heart pictures that used to be almost everywhere in every household, every Catholic household? Uh, we had one uh, that was painted by this men, uh, 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 artist named Mendoza. It was the best uh, painting of a, of a sacred heart uh, that I've ever seen. But anyway, the eyes of that, of Jesus, you know, in there, and the heart, you know, that has the crown on it, and the flames are coming out of that heart. When I, I am consecrating the host now, uh, just, you know, thinking about, you know, all of the evidence that's there for the real body and blood of Jesus, as I'm, con got it. As I'm consecrating uh, the host, I think of him looking at me with that burning heart, with the crown of uh, thorns, with the, the flame of love that is there. Because after all, that is what the Eucharist is. If it is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, if it is His whole person, His soma poured out for us on the cross, if it is His complete self-sacrificial gift, then it is also His unconditional act of love. Remember <clears throat> in Jesus' words in John 15, 13, there is no greater love than a man can have than to give his life, to give his whole self for his friends. And therefore, that is the self, that is the heart tissue. That is the wounded heart of the actual Jesus from Calvary um, sitting right there on top of these hosts. That is what we are receiving when we receive it into us. The real body and blood hanging from the cross at Calvary that uh, we, you know, from the double collapse of time that Jesus intended. That is uh, the real unconditional love of Jesus poured out in an ultimate self-sacrifice. And what does it do? What did it do? I mean, it defeated evil immediately. What's going to unshine the unrestricted love of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What's going on outside? The devil's got no chance. I mean, this already, you know, you can see. What does it do? It, of course, uh, heals us from venial sin. It heals the effects of past sin. It begins to free us from the habits of past sin. And in addition to all that, it transforms us. I mean, I, I, all I can tell you is, is this. is that, you know, when I went to college... I was a numbers guy, and I was a pretty hard utilitarian type of guy. I was interested in science, and I was interested in facts. And of course, I, on a bet, I started going to daily mass. And this guy, Bert Martinez, he comes up to me, and he basically says, uh, hey, uh, what are you going to do for Lent? And I said, well, I, I'm going to give up meat or something. He says, not me, I'm going to go to mass every day. I thought, if Martinez can do this, I can do this. So I thought, I'll go to mass every day. So I start going to Mass every day, and I got hooked. Lent was over. I wasn't about to stop. I wanted those homilies. I wanted the Eucharist. I wanted whatever it was I was getting, because I was finally getting some peace in my life, and I really began to think, I want this. And then finally, you know, as, as, I, as I got, you know, people would say to me, Spitzer, you're changing. You, you, you know? And I'd say, no, I'm still the same hard, utilitarian uh, kind of numbers guy that doesn't much care about anything except the facts. And they go, yeah, you're still like that. But... You're less so. And I thought, I wonder why. I now know why. It was the Holy Eucharist that was transforming me. Corod corloquitur. Jesus' heart speaking to my heart. And look at what happened to me. I mean, <clears throat> I went from the hard utilitarian to the priest. Oh, he's so 
crafty. He just knows how to do this with his loving ways. So when you look at that host in the future, I beg of you, see that sacred heart picture. See the eyes of love. See the heart that's burning with love. See, of course, in that body and blood sacrificed on the cross, the one who loves you, loves you to transform you, loves you to protect you and break the spell of evil, loves you into the fullness of, as John promises multiple times, eternal life. If you want this uh, in your classes, uh, you know, you might just consider, um, uh, you know, this book here, it's called The Catholic Faith and Science. It's on Sophia Institute for Teachers. If you're homeschoolers, you, you really, you know, science has so much to tell us about faith, so much to tell us about the soul, so much to tell us about the Eucharist. I beg of you, just look at this as for senior year students. We have a middle school curriculum also called Speak the Faith for Middle School Students combining the scientific evidence for God, the soul, and Jesus. Uh, just take a look at it, Sophia Institute for Teachers. I thank you so very, very much for your kind attention today. And remember, Jesus is really present in the Eucharist.